All right, welcome everyone to episode four of Honestly Bilal. Today I have another medical student with me today. I'm with Melissa Yuan. Um, you know, this is a show where we talk about with med students who are interested in ophthalmology, also with current ophthalmologists in the field trying to hear their stories of how they got where they are so we can get there too and learn from each other. So I'm really excited to be back today with you guys because it's been a crazy week for me. I've been on vascular surgery. So it's been case after case and, you know, pretty intense stuff, a lot of standing. So it's nice to sit down and have a chat with somebody who I, I've never met before, but I've interacted with on Twitter and social media. So I'm really excited to be here. So welcome, Melissa. Thanks for having me, Bilal. Yeah, absolutely. So it's really cool to be with you. Good to see that, you know, you're taking initiative to try to meet more people too. I think it's really cool that we have this opportunity, especially with Zoom. Like, I never used Zoom before this yeah. whole pandemic. So for me, it's been nice to kind of like get situated with something virtual like this and feel comfortable. So I don't know about you if you feel the same way. I totally agree. Yeah. We have all those interviews coming up that'll all exactly. be like this. So this there is perfect practice. Very fun. So, you know, I just want to get to know you. We've never met. We've never actually spoken to each other. Last night I called you because we had to just kind of reschedule something. But besides that, we've never like met face to face or talked to each other in a, in a setting like this. So it's been nice to relax and kind of get to make more friends. Because, you know, like, like I talked about with Arjun too, with the previous interview that without the interview trail, it's kind of hard to really get, you know, that social aspect of, of getting to meet people and feeling comfortable and being like, well, I might have friends and in this field I want to go into someday. So it's really cool to have that because you never know someday if you're a specialist in something, I might call you like, hey, Melissa, it's good to hear from you. I really need help with something. I've never figured this situation out. So I think it's cool to think in those terms, like down the road, like who, where we can think back on this maybe someday and be like, wow, it's really crazy how we were just kids on a podcast or video channel and now here we are. So I don't know. I like to think about it like that. I don't know how, how you feel about it, but that's I idea. love that. We're all going to be colleagues. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so we're all getting to know each other. Yeah, the world's more interconnected now than ever, so you never know. So kind of tell everybody where you grew up and where you're from, if you don't mind. I am from Sharon, Massachusetts, which is a little town. It's near Foxborough, which is where the Patriots play, mm. uh, and uh, almost an hour outside of Boston. Okay. And speaking of Boston, you go to Harvard for undergrad, mm -hmm. and you're from originally, and you, taught, you kind of told me about this uh, a little earlier, but you're from where you grew up. It's, it's a small town, but it's, it's not... It's not suburban because you also grew up with some animals, right? Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So we had a big enough backyard that my parents had 35 chickens and honeybees. We had a couple of hives of them before they got decimated by the honeybee mm. um, illness. But And then we had rabbits and dogs and turtles and um, the pig. The pig is named Cheerio. Yeah, that's the thing. I saw that in your bio and I was like, I need to hear yeah. about Cheerio. So Cheerio <laughs> must be your prize, your prize pig, your favorite. Is that right? That's he's pretty great. Okay. He, he's great. Most people have a dog. You have Cheerio. We had a dog too. The dog is wonderful. Um, oh, okay. They're wonderful in different ways. Yeah, for sure. So what was it like growing up? Were you comfortable with animals or were you like very like timid around them? Like how, what was your relationship with animals when you were growing up? I have always loved animals. Mm. Uh, I actually begged for that dog for years before we got him. And yeah. uh, uh, I still love animals, but it's a little different in New York City. Yeah. So I fostered some dogs earlier in med school. I ended up adopting one of them. Uh, so now I'm a dog mom too, a dog of my own. You're from a small place in Massachusetts. You went to Harvard, then you go to Cornell in the city. How was that transition? Was it like comfortable for you or was it like a, kind of like a was it strange going from like that you know that environment it's obviously like a high academic institution at harvard 
and Cornell's a great school too, but like just going from Massachusetts to uh, New York City, Boston to New York, what was that like? It was a huge transition for me. I had never lived in a big city before. Uh, it's a different culture. People move faster. They yeah. talk faster. They're a mm -hmm. little bit more rude. Um, I had to learn how to order a bagel really quickly because, you know, I was too slow at first. Mm -hmm. um, but I couldn't be happier with coming here to train. I think it's the best place possible with so many people and so many patients yeah. and um, just all the resources you could possibly ask for. I feel like that diversity too of this, like not only not only in terms of cultures, but also like the ways of life and also the boroughs. Like I've never been to New York City. I've been fascinated by New York City. I've always like wanted to know what it's like to live there or visit number one, but then also to live there and to do something like serious, like med school or, or just any form of training to, in a city like that. It must be, you know, so unique and rigorous, but also so exciting and fun. Cause I feel like you never really know what's coming. I feel like, which is really cool. But I think it takes a special kind of person also to be able to study and like, have a focus in a place like that where you know you know med school is discipline med school is like you have to have a structure and and a city like that it seems to just have like you know city never sleeps it's kind of crazy to have that structure so i i mean in toledo we don't have that problem there's not a lot to do so <laughs> we don't have the new york city issue but I, I think it's interesting because me and my friends talk about that like what is it like to go to med school in miami or new york city where mm -hmm. there's like constantly something going on and, and it's kind of crazy but it's, it's, it's cool to hear those perspectives too, because I never, I don't know what that's like. And that's something I wanted to know more about, but yeah. So, so, okay. So you're in your fourth year, you were talking, talking to me earlier about how before COVID you were doing like a research sort of initiative at, at Cornell. Just talk about that a little bit. It sounds really cool. For sure. So I was really lucky that when COVID hit, I had already finished my clerkships. So we finished them between like uh, MS two and a half and MS three and a half. And then I took step one and I started my research block, which is six months of dedicated time for research. Okay. Uh, so I was in a gene therapy lab at Cornell with a neurosurgeon we have here. And I was all excited about my project, which is supposed to be on a um, gene therapy for Alzheimer's disease. And oh, we wow. were uh, starting to make it and we had just started to validate the vector and we were going to start to test it in animals when COVID shut down the lab. Mm. So I've had to change the project around a little bit. Luckily, I've been back in the lab since late May. So okay. we've been back at it. Uh, it's a new project now. It's on intra-arterial um, injection of the gene therapy with focused ultrasound opening of the blood-brain barrier. It's a different way of drug delivery, basically. Interesting. It's a little bit more simple. So hopefully yeah, I can get it super done. Super simple. Yeah, the <laughs> most simple thing I've ever heard, of course. No, yeah, you made it sound really easy, but it's cool. I mean, it's it's nice that you were able to adjust, especially in a time where we're all making adjustments because it's kind of, you know, it's scary to be in the middle of something that you were really putting a lot of effort in, obviously, and then it kind of just, you know, everybody's dealing with kind of like figuring out how to recalibrate. So mm -hmm. I'm glad to see that you figure out something else, though. That's good. That's good to hear. I wish I could have that sort of expertise in something. So you have to teach me a little bit more about the blood-brain barrier um, <laughs> and all that stuff. So... Obviously, you know, you're interested in ophthalmology. That's how we got to know each other. You're being, you're going to be applying in ophthalmology this upcoming fall. Kind of tell everybody what drew you into ophthalmology. What's your story with how you got interested in it? And talk about that a little bit. For sure. So I came to medical school pretty sure I was going to be a neurosurgeon, actually. Okay. That makes um, sense research, yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, so I had studied neurobiology in undergrad. Right. I loved the brain. I did mm -hmm. research on the brain. And then mm -hmm. I got to med school, and I still thought I was going to be a neurosurgeon. Mm -hmm. 
I started doing research in this lab in my first year and I shadowed neurosurgeons and I was lucky to rotate through neurosurgery pretty okay. early in my clinical year and I thought it was awesome. I thought right. it was great. Mm -hmm. uh, it, the community and the research and the surgeries were really, really amazing. Yeah. But then as my clinical year went on, I realized that I also really like primary care and mm -hmm. getting to know my patients over years and years and um, making these relationships with people and yeah. uh, clinic. I really like clinic and yeah. that's not very common of a neurosurgeon. And I yeah. realized basically that my personality is a better fit for something where I can have outpatient longitudinal care. Mm -hmm. But also I couldn't stand the thought of giving up surgery, especially mm -hmm. microsurgery. Right. Uh, so I was really lucky that I rotated through ophthalmology during my primary care rotation, actually, which mm -hmm. goes to show you what New York City is like in terms of primary care. Uh -huh. um, but, and I realized this, this is it. Everyone was so happy. The patients were happy. Yeah. They yeah. love their ophthalmologist. Absolutely. That's something I loved about it. Everyone told me, you know, this is my favorite doctor right here. This is the best. And I saw surgery. I shadowed a retina surgeon, actually, for the first time in the OR. Mm -hmm. um, and it was so amazing. I couldn't believe that when you look through the pupil, you're like looking through the pupil to see the back of the eye. I still yeah. can't get over how cool yeah. that is. Um, and so that's when I knew uh, that the relationships you build with patients, the surgeries, the mm -hmm. research also, gene therapy is very um, active in yeah. especially the retinal world, but especially also in the rest of ophthalmology. And I, I knew that this yeah. was it. No, that's crazy. So if, it's it's funny because now this is the second. So I've done. You're my second student interview, right. and you're the second person who went from having a specialty that they were really interested in, and then switching to ophthalmology. Arjun was ortho, right? Ortho, yeah, he was ortho. That's right. He yeah. Ophthalmology. So you're. I told him. I joked with him. You're. He was bones to eyes, and now you're brains to eyes. Right. A little closer. Yeah, a little. A little closer. There just makes a little more. You know, it, it continues on. So that's really interesting. So you actually. It's not like you really left neuro in a way either because, you know, the retina is obviously nervous tissue and, and it's some, it still ties in. So I feel like maybe that experience was still in a way, it's continuing your passion for neuroscience, right? So I feel like you're, and, and with gene therapy and stuff too, you know, you're, you're still implementing stuff that you are passionate about, but just re, you know, reintroducing to a different avenue. So I guess it's, that works out, you know? Yeah. Yeah. What have I... The, my early ophthal mentors is a retina surgeon here, Dr. Keish, and he yeah. actually wanted to be a neurosurgeon oh, to be off and did all that research and then changed his mind also. And now he's in mm -hmm. retina. He claims it's basically the same thing, but better. Oh. So um, that actually really helped me too, to hear that perspective. Yeah. And identifying with somebody who kind of made you feel more confident in that decision. Right, that I wasn't crazy. You know, yeah, making yeah, switch. Sure. yeah. And I think it's something a third year really does, or at least I guess at least our clinical years, because I guess mm -hmm. your, school, your school is a little differently, but I think the clinical years can kind of make you think again and then again, and then really, it makes you kind of question, like, what do I really like as a person in terms of my personality, in terms of what works for me, what is natural for me, what makes me feel like I'm being true to myself and, and being in a place where I feel like, in a field at least, or want to be part of the field that makes me feel like this this is... Uh, not only a place I fit, but I can actually contribute to. So, you know, you're doing your research and, and trying to find advances in gene therapy and stuff like that. I think it's super cool. And to me, the retina is cool also for that reason, because there is so many novel advances for, for, you know, different stuff like that. And, you know, I think it's cool that you started it. And I think it's really cool. You have a great mentor too, who has, who has a story that you 
relate to. I think that's how you form a really good relationship, you know, with each other. And, you know, you actually have a personal relationship where you can confide in them, you know, your conflicts of like, how do I feel about this path or this path? And I think it's important to seek that resource. So mm-hmm. that's great. So would you consider him your biggest mentor? Do you have other mentors you like, you know, you, you along the way have been helpful for you outside of ophthalmology, just in life too? Yeah, I, um, so when we learned ophthalmology, like we had two days on it during our neuro yeah. um, preclinical unit, there was a fellow who came and taught us. And I remember thinking, wow, she is so nice, just so happy and like lo- clearly loves her job. But I wasn't interested in ophthalmology at the time. But she was the first person I ran into when I was actually in the clinic looking for uh, someone else I was meeting with that day. And she remembered me from class and she welcomed me into neuro op clinic. Wow. And it was uh, she showed me just how welcoming the ophthalmology community is, which I think you and I have seen over and over again on Twitter yeah. now and social Absolutely. media, but she was the first who showed me that. And I definitely consider her one of my biggest cheerleaders um, mm-hmm. in ophthalmology. That's great. Okay. So do you still keep in touch? Are you still in contact with her? And yeah, everything? yeah. She, she left. She was an attending as she, after her fellowship, she joined our staff for a bit, but then she went back to Oklahoma where she's okay. from. Okay. Um, and so I've been texting her trying to make sure she's okay with all, you know, she texted me when COVID started and was right. like a big deal in New York. And now I'm worried about her in Oklahoma. Yeah. Right. Funny how that is. I know. I mean, New York city and especially you were in the heat of it. Like where did you go back home to Massachusetts when it mm-hmm. kind of, you stayed in the city? I stayed. Yeah. Cause I was, um, wow. unreasonably hopeful I would be back in the lab. <laughs> um, uh, and then, I also was able to join some volunteering things, you know, That's making awesome. masks, delivering food, that kind That's of awesome. simple stuff. So it felt like I was being helpful, even though I'm sure yeah. it wasn't just, I wasn't medical, you know. No, I mean, medical. that's the thing is like you find, you find a way to still be, uh, you put your, your skills aside to find out a way to help out. And that's really right. cool. Because especially, I mean, New York City was looking for anyone. I mean, they were looking for just somebody, you know, bodies who could do something, right. uh, especially in the medical field. So that's that's really creative and, and and it takes a lot of effort to put yourself out there in, in situations like that and um so i applaud you on that that's really cool it's, i'm sure you're gonna look back someday too because i think we're gonna look back in history and, and remember this period so you know like distinctly because it was such a transformative time mm-hmm. um, so i think it's gonna be interesting you know when you know your your family down the road or, or your, if you ever have kids or grandkids or whatever you know they'll ask what did you do what was that period like in time like did you do anything and you can be proud that you said yeah actually i was a med student and i stopped my research just to start volunteering i think those kind of stories have a lot of merit and they really i think you know when you think about what's going to sound like when you're older and reflecting back on this time as sad and tragic as it's been for people to do something positive like that uh, it'll it'll hopefully inspire people down the road too um who need it because, you know, more will come. Unfortunately, I think that we can't predict. I don't know enough about infectious disease or epidemiology to yeah. talk about pandemics confidently, but I, can, <laughs> I think it's good that we can do some, figure out what we can do now in case, you know, down the road there, there's a similar situation. So be prepared. Yeah. yeah. So then you talk about um, mentors and stuff and in medical school so far at Cornell, have you had a favorite, just like absolute best experience in med school that you've just been super, like what was your, what was your absolute favorite moment of med school for you? So this is going to sound so cliche, but I loved all of my clinical years so much. I think I loved that um, with every rotation, it was just a quick bite of this specialty and you could really pretend that you were in that specialty and see yourself there and 
it was very open-ended. I, you know, saw myself as a pediatrician, as an OB-GYN, as, yeah. the, um, as a primary care physician. And it's, it's a kind of openness we'll never have again, I think. And that was really fun for me. I, people were always a little confused why I was so happy during clinical year, but it was this, und, you know, unending possibilities was, was the best part of med school for me. Yeah. So you had an open mind to seeing yourself being in every position to kind of be like, what could I see myself fit in this field in a way? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I really wanted to take clinical year with that kind of attitude um, yeah. just to make the most of it because you For never sure. know. And I didn't know that I would be interested in ophthalmology. Yeah, and at the end of the day, even if you know, you may not be interested in pediatrics or OBGYN for practicing, but you never, you need knowledge is knowledge and it's never useless. And you know, everything ties in at some point or another, I, I think, or at least I believe, I want to believe. So I think that's, that's an important, crucial part. So that's good. You like third year. And it's, and is it, explain to me one more time. Is it third year that you guys do your clinical rotations or is it second year? I'm just kind of trying to figure out the timeline here. Yeah, it's, it was always confusing to the residents too. Um, yeah, so yeah, you're a second year. Uh, so we start our clinicals a year and a half into med school. So wow. that yeah, is really soon. It was, it was soon. Um, I felt like I didn't know anything because we didn't take step one until after. So I really felt like I had no knowledge base, sure. uh, but it shows you how much you're capable of at some mm -hmm. point that you're able to just go in there and learn on the fly. Yeah. Um, and then we do that for one full year. So from MS2, halfway through MS2 to halfway through MS3. Okay. Got it. So that's, I think there's a couple of schools that do that too, especially in the yeah. Northeast. I, I figure like, you know, in the Midwest, we don't do that, but I think that's more of a trend that a lot of places are doing. Um, and I think it's actually really interesting now because with COVID and, and the entire step one situation where, you know, tests are being pushed back and stuff like that. Uh, I've always rotating this week with, an, with a third year, oh, with a rising third year while I'm a rising fourth year. And, you know, she was telling me how she hasn't taken step one yet. And it's really hard mm -hmm. about like studying for rotations and shelves with step. And I didn't have, I wanted to find some advice to give her. I couldn't, but do you have any advice for people who are out there who are in the similar situation? Like, cause I know there's some M2s who are rising M3s who haven't taken step one yet and they're going to start rotations. So what is your advice to how to balance all that and try to be proactive with studying? Do you have any? I, that, I think this happened to maybe it was SUNY Downstate also that they normally do two full years, clinical year and then, no, and then step and then clinical year, okay. but they've had to switch it around to do step after. So they wanted yeah. some advice and, uh, one of my good friends is at Dartmouth and she's going to have the same problem where she has to take step one halfway through MS3 during rotations. And yeah, I think yeah. for me, it was helpful to know that what you're learning on rotations actually does help. Mm -hmm. um, being able to learn from your patients makes it stick so much better. I didn't have to study, for example, chemotherapy drugs basically for for step one because I rotated through uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering for my medicine clerkship and so oh, wow. it was all kind of in there which yeah. was surprising to me actually that it was still in there right right um so I told her not to worry as much as about that and to really immerse herself in her rotations while she sure. was there and then I think they still get some dedicated time and I personally thought that six weeks was more than enough time okay. to go through everything again Got it. so I'll share that I'll share that with my med student on Monday because I think she was I feel bad because we're like, so we have to split up the cases every day and I'm trying to get for the early morning ones. So I'm like, look, I'll the afternoon so you can get out here. You got to study. Like, right. I, I feel yeah. anxious for her. I'm like, you need to go. Like, get out. <laughs> study. Don't yeah. stay till 6 p.m., please. You're not, you don't need to be, you know, but. That's it, so it's, tough. It's a challenge. And I really feel for them. Um, mm -hmm. 
and hopefully they find some solution to making I don't know. I have no idea what it's like to be on that end. I don't know what it's like to be on the end where people who assess their step one scores is like. So I just hope that they figure it out in a way that's conducive and sustainable for their health and uh, their power through. So that's that's important. It'll be pass fail soon enough, right? Yeah, exactly. So things are changing as it is. So so then, okay. So that was kind of a bleak topic. I want to move on and want to think about that for those kids. But right. Uh, so I, you told me something really interesting that you uh, actually are fluent in Spanish and that you went to Spain. And tell us about that. You were living in Madrid. Like, what was that like? Tell. I want to know as much as you want to share. <laughs> that it was the best year ever, uh-huh. besides clinical year. Sure. Um, so I studied Spanish starting at. Harvard. So when I was 18 years old was the first time I learned the language, which is way past that critical period for what you're supposed to (laughs) easily pick up languages. Um, And I, I knew it would be useful, but I didn't realize how much I was going to love learning the language. And I went to Spain for the first time when I was a sophomore in college for a summer. And I did research on uh, fear conditioning in humans using MEG to record the neural responses to that. And then I loved that research so much, I was completely determined to go back. And Uh so I got a fellowship from Harvard to go for a year after I graduated. And that's what I did. I went back to the same lab, which was the Centro de um, Tecnica Biomedica in Madrid. It's um, a big center for like biomedical engineering type stuff. And we were the neuroscience center. And I went back and I finished that project. on fear conditioning in humans and what the neural networks are that lie behind it. Um, Mm. And I loved living in Spain. It was completely different. As you know, I was from Massachusetts. I had always lived in Massachusetts. So I was finally somewhere completely new. I had to learn how to be a little bit more relaxed um, than a Northeasterner because life is quite different in Spain. I learned how to eat dinner at 9 p.m. Yep, exactly. Uh, Yeah. And, uh, and I really was able to practice my Spanish, which has been so useful for, mm. for patient care yeah. um, and being able to build relationships with the patients too. Absolutely. Especially in, especially in your city where you have mm-hmm. a lot of patients who speak Spanish fluently and they don't know, I mean, some people don't speak English at all. So yeah, yeah. that's actually really crucial. I'm sure that you've been very really useful to people whose teams you've been on and stuff to have that skill. Sometimes it was the most useful thing I did. Yeah, that's really nice. That's really cool. I think it's a really cool story too because you experienced another culture for a full mm-hmm. year, and I'm I advocate for that. I feel like I would love I would love an experience like that just to figure out you know uh, how people practice their daily life and stuff in a, in a country like that which has a very different attitude. So um, yeah, I actually have teammates. I played tennis in college. I, I don't know if you're in another interview. Yeah. Um, and my some of my best 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 friends who I still keep in touch with this to this day. Um, are from Spain, so I okay. uh, actually visited them in Madrid, and I love Madrid. It was an awesome city. I mean, it was great so city. fun. I mean, it's, it's it's just a great, it's such a cool culture. To me, I, I don't know if, you, have you been to Barcelona too? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I don't know how you feel. I like Madrid more. I just feel like Barcelona is a little bit too touristy. Uh, Music to my ears, but well, that's exactly I mean, what I think. Indeed. I, I really yeah. think that too. That's really I what like I think. Madrid has its own, like, personality, and it, it's very, mm-hmm. like, I want, if I want to experience Spain, I feel like Madrid really gave me what it's like to be um a span you know a spanish person and feel like right. what their daily life is like and i told and it is totally like you know they eat paella they right. have it at 9 p.m they you know mm-hmm. they do their thing so 
I'm looking forward to hopefully coming back someday. Uh, we never know. Yeah, exactly. We'll, when the EU opens their borders to us again. Yeah, exactly. And that's really <laughs> cool. I, I mean, I can't imagine living for a year. So I feel like it's probably almost like another home to you. I mean, you must know it really well. Madrid. I love going back. It's, yeah. Yeah. So how many times I have you been it. now? Have you been back a couple of times or what? Yeah, I try to go back uh, at least a couple of times a year. Um, I haven't been in a while now because sure. of COVID. So yeah, yeah, waiting. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, a couple times a year. You, you must have made friends there who you keep in touch with and who mm -hmm. you're still talking to and everything. Yeah, and it feels like going home now. Yeah. You know, it's a place that I know. Yeah, that's the crazy thing too about like these friendships that you make when, you know, we get busy in med school and it's not always as easy to keep in touch with people. Mm -hmm. But there's some friendships you have from before med school or even during or whatever that when you don't talk to that person for a while, but you do talk again, it just picks up where you left off. Like you're not mm -hmm. ever changed. And I think those are really special friendships that hopefully we hold on to going forward also because you know you need that to maintain that you are a person who uh who, who's, who's had experiences and you made you met people along the way who really shaped you too so very cool so and then you know talk about a little about your hobbies what do you do for fun what are your interests like what do you who's melissa the person <laughs> well we mentioned that i love animals so i Good. we talked about my fostering dogs and all that yeah. stuff um I walked dogs for WAG a lot during first year. Oh. I got my steps in. That was fun. Yeah. It's, um, and I got to go into a lot of really great houses in New York, too, because you go in to pick up the dog. It, oh, I bet. it was crazy. But, yeah. um, I love languages, but we also talked about that. Uh, yeah. I, and let's see. I actually played tennis growing up, too, which is so funny. Yeah, I played the US, USDA play. tournaments and all that good stuff. No way. Yeah. There you go. I mean, we're not that good up in the Northeast is always what I heard compared to the rest of the, no, rest of the country. Hey, hey, it's all relative, right? It's just about having fun. Yeah, and it's That's so fun. But then okay. I um, thought I would branch out a little when I got to college because I'd only, only ever played tennis. I had never done another sport, so yeah. I tried out some I am rowing which is fun. Oh, I also wasn't wow. that great at that, but it was yeah. really fun. Um, I took up Tough Mudder races with a good friend of mine from college. Um, oh. And those are really fun because they're collaborative. There's yeah. no timing and right. um, it's, you're literally just running through mud and obstacles yeah. for, for 13 miles, which was great. And yeah. my most recent thing is I've taken up running. I'm. It's more a to show myself that I can do it because yeah. I was the slowest runner in my third grade class in the mile. Uh, okay, you're growing. So I, <laughs> uh, and I finished a half marathon last March. So oh, that was, uh, thank you. It was just yeah. to show myself that I'm capable yeah. of doing more than I thought I was. For sure. That's, and that's such a confidence booster too, just to get that under your belt. Be, all right, if I can do this, why not do a full? So are you going to do a full at some point? Are you thinking about it, considering, or not yet? Thinking about it, thinking, yeah. yeah that's the a big jump. The second half is still a big thing. It's a big jump. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Well, I mean, it's, it's been really fun having you. I'm trying to do one new thing in my show now where I'm doing what, you know, a fun question. So if you could have one dinner guest uh, for an evening, you know, whether they, they're alive or no longer alive, who would it be? And what would you want to talk about with them? So someone I've always thought was amazing is Santiago Ramón y Cajal, the Spanish neuroscientist who elucidated what a neuron was. Because uh -huh. his, I don't know how he thought of it, because everyone before him had thought that the brain was a giant conglomerate of, I don't know what, of just like fibers that were intertwined. And he somehow realized that they were different separate neurons from each other that were signaling to each other and i want to know how does one's mind make that jump from what everyone else has always known and learned i guess i'm always interested in learning how people are innovative and creative and yeah. 
how those brilliant minds work. Right. Or what just clicked for them to be like, exactly. this is what it is. And I'm convinced and I know it sounds crazy, but I think this is what it is. Yeah. You know, that's yeah. cool. Good guess. Good choice. I like that answer. I had no idea who that was before you said the name. So I learned something <laughs> from you. So that's the point of the show. Well, Melissa, it was great to have you. Thanks for joining me today. You're always welcome to come back. Um, I'm looking forward to see what happens with you and your, and your career this year and seeing what tra your tra trajectory is. Um, so where can people find you on Twitter if they want to network with you or get to you know, follow you? What can, what's your handle on Twitter? Or I'm at underscore Melissa Yuan, Y-U-A-N. Awesome. And again, I'm Bilal. This, I'm the host of Honestly Bilal. You can find me on Twitter at Bilal underscore 1712 or on Instagram at Honestly Bilal. Thanks guys for joining. We have a couple more interviews this week. So or this weekend coming up with Dr. Steinman and Angie as well. So looking forward to those and we'll see you then. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Bilal. Absolutely. Be sure to like, comment, and subscribe to Honestly Bilal on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or if you'd like to watch on the YouTube channel, you can watch these interviews in their video format. You can find me on Instagram at Honestly Bilal and on Twitter at Bilal underscore 1712. Be sure to check out future chats coming up with medical students, residents, and ophthalmologists in the field today.